It's Maundy Thursday, and what better time to try to understand the role the cross plays in our lives. In part two of our Understanding the Cross series, David Lose discusses what the Gospels have to tell us about the cross and its role in our lives. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Church Next podcast. And I hope that you are all safe and not going too crazy inside. Today we'll be doing the second of three podcasts that we'll be doing with David Lose on Understanding the Cross. The first podcast in this series we did a few weeks ago and it discussed the cross through the lens of our own experiences. This one we're doing today, Maundy Thursday, discussing Understanding the Cross through the lens of the four Gospels. And we'll launch the final podcast in this series tomorrow on Good Friday. That one will consider major theories about the cross that have been offered by theologians. Today's podcast will be a little longer than the ones that we've offered in the past. There are more talks, so it's going to be a little different from the pattern that we've established. David Lose is senior pastor at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's the author of the Making Sense book series, including Making Sense of the Cross in 2011, Making Sense of the Christian Faith in 2010, and other works in the series. And David speaks widely in the United States and abroad on preaching, the Christian faith in a postmodern world, and biblical interpretation. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library at churchnext.tv. You can learn more about us there. If you'd like to support us, please consider a $9 monthly subscription. That'll give you access to all of our over 400 individual online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking with David about the cross and the gospels. Most of us tend to think about God in terms of God's power, God's attributes, God's omniscience, omnipotence, holiness. Martin Luther, the medieval German monk who helped launch the Protestant Reformation, had the same experience and yet found that thinking of God this way terrified him. And that this approach could actually drive people away from God, could make it difficult to see God as Jesus, God with us, the God who came to earth and loved us and suffered the little children to come unto him. Luther's solution was to place all of these ideas into dialogue with Jesus, the God on the cross. And today we're going to take this God of attributes and our beliefs and ideas about God and consider them in light of the cross. So we'll explore how our all-powerful God can be understood and known and approached in the person of Jesus. And what does omniscience and omnipotence look like when it comes in the form of the crucified Christ? And we'll explore the stories of Jesus in the four Gospels and learn about various theories of atonement Literally, that means making something broken at one again, as we try to understand what God was and is doing in Jesus Christ. And this process will, we hope, bring us to a greater and more intimate understanding of God. In his first talk, David focuses on the discrepancy about the idea of the Almighty, the creator of the universe, that the Bible reveals building the world, parting seas, speaking to people in the voice of thunder from burning bushes, and the God whom we see dying on the cross at Calvary. He talks about how theologies of the cross can theorize about how to understand the presence of the creator and redeemer God 
in the person of Christ on the cross and how looking closely at the Gospels can help us comprehend what the cross means in the context of our faith and in the context of our daily lives. Part of the reason our questions about the cross matter so much is that whatever we say about the cross, we're also saying about God. Most of us tend to think about God in terms of God's power. This also has been true for most of Christian theology. There's been a tendency to define God in terms of God's attributes. You probably know what I mean. We might use words like omniscient, that means God is all-knowing, or omnipotent, God is all-powerful, or we might talk about God being all-just or all-holy. All these are ways to try and give language to something that is bigger and larger than us. And so it's understandable that we might think about God and revert almost immediately to talking about God's attributes. The challenge is that before long, we've described a God that is so big, so huge, so holy, so just, that it's really hard for us to imagine this God being involved with us, this God being approachable to us, this God caring about us, this God being able to put up with us. Before long, the God of attributes can be so big that that God is terrifying, even crushing. Martin Luther, a 16th century monk and reformer of the church, had a very similar experience. He grew up in the medieval world that stressed God's attributes, that God was all just, all holy, all knowing, and it terrified him. Later in his life, Luther would look back, in fact, and say that that God, the God of attributes, not only terrified him, but drove him to hate God. Luther instead insisted on looking not at God's attributes, that is what we think about God, but instead Luther wanted us to look to what God actually did in the person of Jesus. And what Luther saw there was one who came and taught and preached and healed and forgave and was crucified. Luther was convinced finally that all of our conversations about God needed to start with the cross. You can still all talk about attributes, but you need to see those attributes, even redefine those attributes in light of what you find at that man hanging on a tree. So what does all-knowing look like when Jesus is afraid or uncertain about the future? What does all-powerful look like when you see Jesus, who we confess is God, hanging on the cross? This is what sometimes we've called Luther's theology of the cross, and this is part of what we're going to do too. We're going to be open to risking our opinions about God, to put our views of God on the table, and to ask again and again, what does that look like? What does that sound like in light of what God actually did in and through Christ's cross and resurrection? So here's our plan for getting at all of these questions. We're going to spend a fair amount of time together looking at what Christians have said across the centuries about the cross. In fact, we're going to group a lot of the best insights Christians have had into three schools of thought or three camps or three broad approaches to understanding God's work in the cross. These are sometimes called theories of atonement, and I want to spend just a minute with this term, this word atonement. It's a theological word, but it's also an everyday word. It's actually a theological word that comes out of the English language, maybe one of the only ones. Most theology comes from Latin or Greek, Hebrew, German, French. But this word at its root means exactly what it says, atonement, that is at one meant. To atone for something is to recognize that something valuable to you, something important to you is broken. And what you want to do is somehow make up for that 
repair it, make it better. Take what was broken into many pieces and make them at one again. And so each of these theories or each of these three schools of thought about the cross tries to understand what is going on, how God is at work to atone, to make that which was broken one once again. Before going there, though, we're first going to review the stories of the cross and resurrection in the Bible. That is, we're going to look at each of the four gospel accounts and to try to hear the distinct confession of each author about what God is up to in and through the cross of Christ. With that in mind, we'll look at these three theories of the atonement, and then we'll come back at the end and weigh these in the balance of our own experiences, our own faith, and ask together the question of how can Christ's cross and resurrection not only be important in general, but also important to us? How can what God did so long ago in and through Christ's cross and resurrection shape our lives today? In his next talk, David discusses why it helps us to understand God to look at the stories of Jesus found in four Gospels whose accounts of Jesus differ. He discusses why having four differing versions of the Gospel is not a problem we have to solve, as we tend to be inclined to see it, but a gift that reveals more to us than a single perspective could do. Looking at each version of the gospel, he says, is like observing a statue or a sculpture from all angles, finding depth and richness that you couldn't see if you were just looking at it from one angle. I want to start with a few comments up front about the gospels themselves. First, I want to draw our attention or invite us to think for just a moment about how interesting, even surprising it is, that the church gathered together four gospels. Four Gospels that tell the same story, but tell it in different ways. In fact, if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll recognize that often they don't always match up, sometimes in small things, little details, sometimes in much larger details, much larger and more important things. So if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that the church was content, was satisfied, even promoted these four different views. Not all Christians felt that way. In fact, for a couple hundred years early in the church at certain regions, people preferred a harmonized view of the scripture. That is, one early church leader thought, look, if, if I'm a lawyer in a Roman court and I have four witnesses, I want them all to agree. These don't. How do we solve that problem? Well, this man named Tatian took the four gospels and wove them together into one harmonized whole. A lot of people liked that for a while. But over time, people began to think, you know, we lost something in the harmonization. And so the church over time recognized, adopted, canonized four gospels that although they agree in many ways, often disagree as well. Why? Because the church finally realized that what God was up to in Jesus was too big to capture entirely from any one point of view. So when we hear or see some differences in the way the story is being told, the question for us isn't, hmm, which one is right, Matthew or Mark, on this healing or parable? But instead, why does Matthew tell it this way? Why is Mark confessing in this particular way? What's the claim John is trying to make by telling the story in this particular way? In the end, what we find is that we approach the story of Jesus the way you might approach a sculpture in a sculpture garden. It's fine to look on it head-on and have a sense of what the artist is rendering, but you realize as you walk around the sculpture 
and see the way the light or the shadows play uh, with the form of the sculpture or see it from different angles and perspectives, that you leave that with a more three-dimensional, 360-degree view of, of that piece of art. The church decides something similar is going on with the Gospels, that by allowing them to speak with integrity and to offer us four different portraits, four different perspectives of what God is up to in Christ, we come away with a richer, deeper, more true understanding of the Gospel. Next, David provides an overview of the Gospel of Mark. Mark was probably the first gospel of the four and was written to a group of Christians who had experienced great suffering. And in it, the disciples are portrayed not as idealized heroes, but as fallible men. And the Jesus we see is perhaps the most human portrayal of Jesus in the four gospels. So in Mark, David argues that Jesus experiences deep anguish, sadness, doubt. And for Mark, the cross is at the center of everything. The Gospels oriented around the, God, the cross and leads up to the cross. And it's the unexpected but most clear place that we find God. And David discusses Mark's portrayal of the cross in his next talk. Okay, so what we're going to do now is offer a brief snapshot of each of the four Gospels. We'll try to give a sense of the community the Gospel writer was writing for, some of the questions and concerns that community had, and to highlight a few of the distinctive contributions each author makes to our larger story of Jesus. We'll do this briefly. Trust me, you're better off reading it in its entirety yourself. And to be honest, you could do that. You could read each of the Passion stories in each of the four Gospels in probably under an hour. But for now, the snapshots. Mark was probably the gospel that was written first. We think that in part because when Matthew and Luke write, they have whole sections of Mark embedded in their stories. That is, it's likely that Matthew and Luke already knew about Mark's gospel, found it helpful, but wanted to work with the same material to answer some of the questions their different communities were having about Jesus and about the Christian faith. Mark's gospel, we think, was written to a group of Christians who had recently gone through a period of suffering themselves. It may be that they had been persecuted. It may be that they had been caught up in some of the struggles between the Jews and the Romans in the 50s and 60s that resulted in the destruction of the temple. Whatever it is, Mark's community most likely came through a pretty turbulent period where some of their members may have, in fact, turned away from the faith. And Mark is right into a community that's now in turmoil, disoriented, dealing with their suffering, wondering what to do with those who left and who may, in fact, be wanting to come back to the Christian community now and trying to sort all of this out. A couple characteristics of Mark's gospel that people almost always refer to or recognize. First, Mark writes in some ways the most human portrait of Jesus. Mark spares no blows. Jesus is anguished, in pain, suffers, has questions, doubts. Mark shows us the human side of Jesus, perhaps more poignantly than any of the author, other authors. Second, Mark's description of the disciples, well, let's just say they're not idealized heroes in Mark's hands. Jesus' earlier fo earliest followers are also very human, very fallible. You'll notice, for instance, that Mark tells us that the disciples fell asleep at Jesus' hour of his need, not just once, but three times. 
Mark is clear that Peter, the chief of the disciples, denies Jesus three times. None of the disciples remain with Jesus to the end at the cross. And even those who come and hear the word of proclamation that Jesus is raised at the end of Mark's story and are told to go and tell this wonderful news to everyone else, well, they fail too, fleeing the tomb in terror, afraid to say anything to anyone. So Mark is very honest about Jesus and his suffering and his humanity and equally unsparing when he describes disciples who rarely get it right and often get it quite wrong. The third thing about Mark that a lot of people have noticed is that the whole of the gospel is oriented to the cross. That is, the cross stands at the center of the story, not just at the end. And everything Mark writes, predictions Jesus makes, healings Jesus performs, preaching, sermons that Jesus offers, all of this leads you to the cross. Why? Because for Mark, the cross is where you see God most clearly. It's not where you expect God to be. We expect God, as we've said before, to come in power. But for Mark, this God is a God of renewal, of strength and vulnerability, and of surprise. And so the very place you would least expect God to be in the suffering of a criminal hanging on the cross, there God is. In Luke, David argues, we get a different perspective. Luke was writing to people of a variety of faith backgrounds, and he showed that Jesus can be seen by anyone who gathers to hear his story. Luke highlights Jesus' compassion. Jesus heals and he forgives. He's deeply concerned for people's welfare, and he shows compassion for the man who's crucified next to him. He intercedes as he dies on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All right, so the second gospel we want to look at then is Luke. Luke's gospel is written probably to a community that is made up not only of Jews, but also Gentiles. And so one of the questions that Luke is dealing with is how does the cross speak to persons of different faith? That is, how are all these different people from all different communities of faith, all different traditions, all different walks of life, all different ethnic backgrounds, how are we all made one in and through what God accomplishes in Jesus' cross? Three things, again, about Luke's gospel to pay attention to. In Luke's treatment, Jesus also is very human, but even more, he is very compassionate, always healing and always forgiving. You see this playing out. Uh, in a variety of ways. Jesus is tremendously concerned for the welfare of his disciples. Jesus uh, is consoling to the other thief who's on the cross with him, promising uh, that he will be with Jesus in paradise this day. Whereas when Mark shows Jesus on the cross, he only cries out one thing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Luke, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In fact, Jesus is so powerfully healing, that even two of the major sub-characters in the story, Pilate and Herod, who up to this point had been enemies, become friends. That's the effect of Jesus and his cross. Second thing to notice in Luke's gospel. We notice in Mark that he tells a pretty hard story about the disciples, ready to share both their flaws and their failings. In Luke's hands, the disciples come off a little better. 
Take, for instance, that scene of Jesus with his disciples the night before the crucifixion. Mark tells us they fall asleep three times. Luke tells us, though, they only fall asleep once, and he gives them a good reason. They were so overcome with grief. Again and again, Luke treats the disciples with gentler artistic hands. Why? Well, the Gospel isn't the only book Luke writes. He goes on to tell another story, the Acts of the Apostles, that talk about the transition from the original disciples to the larger Christian community. That is, Luke is narrating another part of the history of God's work in the world, the founding and spread of the early church. And guess what? Those same disciples that are in the Gospel, they're going to be the stars of the second story, too. And so when we read the Gospel, Luke is always preparing that even preparing us to recognize that even though these disciples are very human people, they're also people through whom God works and through whom God will accomplish great things. Third thing to look for in Luke's gospel is that Jesus and the good news of this compassionate, forgiving, loving God is always revealed to anyone who will gather around and hear the story of Jesus. That is, all of the gospel writers in one way or another are trying to communicate to their present-day believers how they can be in touch with Jesus, how they can know Jesus, even though they weren't part of the original disciples. Luke invites us to imagine that we encounter Jesus when we hear his story told, when we gather in worship and fellowship around the story and around the sharing of a meal. So in the resurrection account that Luke offers, there's a particular story of two disciples on their way to Emmaus who encounter Jesus on the road. They don't recognize him, but they talk with him, and while they're walking, Jesus opens up the scriptures, helps them to understand all that happened on the cross as a fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Well, as they're walking, they invite Jesus to their home when it becomes evening, and as he's there, he shares with them a meal. He takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. And in those actions, which sounds so much like what we do around communion, the disciples' eyes are opened and they see Jesus. Luke's making a promise, I think, that whenever we gather and hear the story of Jesus and gather around a meal, we also will see Jesus. Matthew was a Jewish scribe who was well-versed in the law and in Jewish tradition, so he was writing to a community of Jewish Christians who were trying to make sense of Jesus' life and ministry in the context of the Jewish tradition. So Matthew points out ways in which Jesus fulfills all the promises of the Hebrew scriptures. He echoes figures such as Moses. Matthew was in conflict with some of his fellow Jewish scribes, and as such he holds the Pharisees much more responsible for Jesus' cross than the other Gospels. Matthew's Gospel is thus marked by struggle and conflict. He represents that conflict in his portrayal of the cross. Let's turn to Matthew. These three Gospels are sometimes called the synoptic Gospels. In Greek, that means seen together. They're kind of like siblings. They bear a strong family resemblance. I mentioned before, Luke and Matthew are probably working with a copy of Mark in front of them. So it's not surprisingly, perhaps, that Matthew follows Mark pretty closely. Keep in mind, though, that Matthew's writing to a community of believers that are largely and in some ways profoundly Jewish. And so his particular concern is to help this group of Jewish Christians understand how Jesus is the fulfiller of all the promises God has made to their ancestors in the faith. 
So one of the characteristics that you'll notice as you, as you are reading through Matthew is that Matthew will regularly point out ways in which Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. More than that, he wants to help people understand that Jesus isn't something entirely new, but stands in continuity with other great persons of Israel's history. This is particularly true in terms of Moses. And so when Jesus offers his most famous sermon, he preaches it, as we know, on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, Jesus preaches on a wide, open, plain place. But for Matthew, if you're trying to help people see how Jesus is like Moses, then you have him preach his great sermon from a mountaintop. Now, one of the challenging things about Matthew, and it's something we're going to want to pay attention to, is that Matthew is in part in a struggle with other Jewish rabbis, other Jewish scribes. And in some ways, I find it very helpful to think about Matthew as a Christian scribe. That is one who knows the Jewish tradition, knows the Old Testament, knows Jewish law, and is trying to make sense of what he has come to believe God is doing through Jesus in light of those things. He's not the only Jewish scribe uh, writing at the time, though. He's not the only rabbi interpreting the Old Testament for a period of, of tremendous change after the destruction of the temple. Some of his opponents are the characters we end up knowing as the Pharisees. So from time to time, you'll notice that Matthew is pretty harsh. He treats these opponents um, with pretty strong language. In fact, when Matthew tells the story of Jesus' cross, he almost entirely exonerates the Romans from their role in the crucifixion. He has Pilate plead innocence and put the guilt on the Jewish Pharisees and people. And the Jews themselves cry out, His blood be upon us. Those are hard words. It might be that as we look back two millennia and we can understand Matthew's community as small and struggling and trying to make sense of their faith, we recognize that Matthew's community is the minority religious community in his environment, we can perhaps understand the language of struggle, even conflict that Matthew uses. The trouble is Christians didn't stay the minority. They soon became the majority. And those words have come back to haunt us as Christians through the centuries have used them to validate our own prejudices and sometimes oppression, discrimination against Jews. So something we're going to want to be careful of and aware of, not only when reading Matthew, but also when we move out to offer our Christian testimony in the world. In his discussion of John, David points out that John was the most intentionally theological of the evangelists, that he probably wrote a bit later than Matthew to a group of Jewish Christians who were wondering if their confession was true. So John writes with the idea of affirming the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the way that Jesus made God visible and knowable. So Jesus is a strong and mighty savior in John's account. And for Jesus, the cross is his identity. It's the moment. It's the place he ascends to his royal stature as the redeemer of the cosmos. He is a Messiah for a broken people. Last but not least, we have the Gospel of John. I mentioned before that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of like siblings. Well, John's more like that odd uncle that you only see at a family reunion about every 10 years. John is the most distinct and different of the Gospel accounts. He's also the one who's most intentionally theological. All the gospel, all the gospel writers, the evangelists, have symbols. John's has always been the eagle, 
Tradition says that St. Augustine named John the Eagle or gave John the symbol of the eagle because he soars above the rest of the Gospels in terms of his lofty reflections on God. Sounds great. Sometimes makes John a little bit more complicated to read. So let me give again a little bit of background about what we think about the people that John was writing to and then some things to look for. John was also probably writing to a community that was largely made up of Jews who now were confessing the faith of Christ. He's writing a little later than Matthew, though, so there aren't the same kind of struggles that are going on. Instead, this is a community that has come to wonder whether or not their confession is true, whether or not they've come to believe in the one who actually is the Messiah of Israel. It may be that they had been in a more liberal synagogue where those who confessed Jesus and those who did not could worship together, and now that's no longer true. It might be that they find themselves in conflict with friends or relatives who aren't sure Jesus is the Messiah. Whatever it is, this is a community that's also been through some turmoil. And in response, John writes his gospel, trying to do a couple of things that that is worth us keeping an eye out for. First, John wants to emphasize how and why and where Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the one who reveals to all people the nature, the heart, of the God of Israel. This comes at the very beginning of John, as at the end of the prologue, something we often read at Christmas time. John says, Now no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, who is at the very bosom and heart of God, he has made God known. So first thing to look for, how is it that John is constantly trying to offer us Jesus as the one who reveals to us the very heart and nature of God? Second thing, In light of this kind of turmoil that his community is going through, John wants to offer a picture of a very strong Jesus. Remember when we looked at Mark, we noticed how human Jesus is, uh, and that was a way that Mark helped his suffering community understand that Jesus knew what they were going through, that God met them in their suffering. John takes a different approach. John instead is wanting to tell people who feel broken, who feel beaten down, maybe oppressed, that their God, their Lord, is a strong Savior. And so when Jesus comes to the point of carrying his cross, in all three other Gospels, the Romans enlist another person, Simon of Cyrene, to carry Jesus' cross. It makes total sense. Jesus has been whipped, he's been beaten, he's exhausted and failing physically. So someone else carries the cross up the hill. Not in John. John goes out of his way to tell us that he himself, Jesus, picks up his cross and strides up the hill because the cross is his destiny. There's a lot of talk throughout John's gospel from Jesus about his hour, about the hour of his glory. It is this moment, the cross, where we see Jesus taking his royal seat from which he views all of the world and accomplishes the divine redemption of the cosmos. All right, so there we are, brief snapshots of all four Gospels. Again, I'd invite you to read them in their entirety on your own. It won't take that long, and you'll be amazed at the diversity of these witnesses and the richness of the story of Jesus that arises when you read them together. And that, again, is why the church imagined that we're actually better off having four distinct pictures of Jesus than only one. Because as we walk around this sculpture, as we walk around this work that God is accomplishing in Christ, By looking at it from four vantage points, we gain a richer, truer picture of Christ. So as you read these stories, let them seep into you. Take them with you. Because as time goes by, you will come to know more deeply and fully the Jesus that arises from all four. 
If you'd like to learn more about what David has to say about understanding the cross, listen to our next podcast, which we're going to launch tomorrow on Good Friday. And that'll be part three of Making Sense of the Cross. And you can also go back and listen to part one, which we did earlier in Lent. We have David's courses available at churchnext.tv, along with David's course on the Gospel of Mark. If you want to learn more about David's ideas, check out his Making Sense series of books, Making Sense of the Cross, Making Sense of Christian Faith, Making Sense of Scripture, and other books. And you can also go to his website at davidlose.net. And that's the end of today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And if you'd like to learn more about us, again, go to churchnext.tv. And I'd like to close with a collect for the sick from the Book of Common Prayer. Heavenly Father, giver of life and health, comfort and relieve your sick servants, and give your power of healing to those who minister to their needs, that those afflicted with this terrible disease for whom our prayers are offered may be strengthened in their weakness and have confidence in your love and care. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. May God be with us all today, and with our loved ones, and in the weeks to come, and always. Amen.